My name is Clark Frayling. And I'm Clyde Gaw. And this is the Blocks Paper Scissors Podcast. In today's episode, Clyde and I will be discussing the secret art of boys. The secret art of boys uh, actually should refer to boys and girls who are interested in fantasy violence because uh, we see a lot of children's art that is related to themes where there are protagonists and antagonists and somebody gets it in the end. Clyde, we have a special guest in the studio. Would you introduce yourself? My name is Tanya Wood, and I'm the school counselor here at Sugar Creek. Yeah, we had to bring in the big guns because <laughs> Clyde and I, we like to talk a lot, but we're not experts. Tanya has a son herself, so... <laughs> two I, sons. Two sons. So uh, she comes at this from a perspective as a school counselor and as a mother of adolescent children. Uh, it will be interesting to get some of Tanya's insight and perspective uh, in this issue. You know, you know, Clark, you and I have been teaching art over five decades, If you, closing in on six decades if you add up all the years we've been teaching. But, um, you know, our main interest is in creative learning experience. Sometimes uh, you and I will be permissive sometimes in uh, trying to connect with the child's collateral interests in order to optimize learning experience. And sometimes we uh, can touch on controversial subject matter. Yeah, the, um, the reason this was, a, this was a good time to talk about this was on our... Facebook page. On the tab, uh, Teaching for Artistic Behavior page, there was a question asked by Lindsay Lowry-Douglas... Uh-huh. And it was very timely because we had discussed having this discussion, and she said, how do you deal with weapons, with the weapon-making issue? And my response to her was, sounds like a good idea for a podcast. So we started looking into this, and that's when I decided to invite Tanya to get another outside point of view. We're happy she's here. So, Clyde, when you were in elementary, how did you deal with your administrators and deal with weapon making in your school? I, uh, once we, you and I started working with TAB Pedagogy, Clark, we, we picked up on the fact that uh, we were authorizing children to express deep-seated emotional aspects of their lives. So uh, the ideas were rich, compelling, profound for many of the children, and that's, that's what we wanted. Um, however, um, you know, when, when you think about fantasy violence, you think about the maiming and killing of individuals, uh, you think of weapons, it can certainly make people uh, feel uncomfortable looking uh, at or observing uh, this kind of art. Certainly, there is, you know, many times children are interested in depicting gore. You know, you think, is this a natural Thing for children to be interested in and what does this mean does it mean the child is going to turn out to be a criminal so um, those are legitimate questions 
I know I, when we first started uh, seeing fantasy violence in, in children's self-directed art back in uh, 2004, 2005, uh, I had a conversation with my principal at the time, um, and um, I told him uh, that, um, you know, we might observe this kind of art. And I assured him that with respect to um, art that was related to uh, fantasy violence, it, the, the reason that boys and some girls were depicting fantasy violence in their art was because they were expressing the world around them and what they observed and, and, and how they had also incorporated aspects of fantasy violence into their, into their uh, fantasy realms and stories that uh, they might consider telling through their art. I told my principal that we might observe this kind of art and that uh, you know, I had done research. I had spoken to Michael Thompson, the author of Raising Cain. He and Dan, Dan Kindlin had done research on this issue. This was a aspect of children's art that, uh, although it might look startling and uh, it might look scary, um, I assured my principal that, you know, we if, if we allowed children to express these controversial ideas, that uh, there would be uh, some educational benefits. And what I could see happening as we were exploring this area in the art room is that there was immense educational benefit from it. So, Tanya, could you kind of give us an idea what is going on developmentally in elementary age kids at that time that we might use as kind of some background information when, when we're looking at kids' art? I think exploration, one, would be something they're, they're not only exploring or hyper-focusing on um, the, what we might call inappropriate pictures or that, that make us feel uncomfortable, but um, they're exploring everything. So I think in their development, especially in the elementary school, they don't know yet what makes adults feel uncomfortable. It doesn't make them feel uncomfortable. So I think that expression is something that they're doing they're, 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 they are incorporating these fantasies, mm -hmm. and they're, they're rich fantasies, mm -hmm. uh, and they're integrated into their consciousness mm -hmm. during the creative act. Right. And they're, you know, they're reliving uh, these, these fantasy realms while they're in the act of creativity. Mm -hmm. They're powerful, imaginary, creative events, uh, what we could observe in the classroom when, when we first started looking into this area mm -hmm. and, and we know that little kids as they get as they develop in, in you know the world's a scary place the world is a scary place and there's a lot of violence mm -hmm. uh, involved uh, in, uh, in in the world and so what I also viewed you know fantasy violence in the art room I viewed it as also as a, a way of coming to terms with the world around them especially during the time period you're talking about, because that's a lot of what was seen on TV. Everything seemed to be focused on, um, you know, whether it was the aftermath of 9-11 or yes. the wars from that. You know, they, they've seen that, and that is real to them, but it's also, like you were saying, an expression of them putting on paper what they are seeing, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a way to ex express what they maybe can't 
verbally yes. expression. Ex exactly, exactly. That's That was the other thing we were seeing. For example, 2004, 2005, the Iraq war was raging, mm -hmm. and we had several children whose parents were mm -hmm. in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And um, that opportunity to uh, incorporate fantasy violence into their art, I know was from, you know, we're not art therapists, but do we think there is a benefit there? Mm -hmm. I think so. We talk a lot about fantasy and, and a lot of, of killing, and, and kids can use the, the artwork that they create as coping mm -hmm. um, and dealing with things. Uh, I think I remember you telling about a story about you asking a little boy, you know, why he drew these mon or oh yeah the the monster under his bed yes. or something like that. <laughs> so he was he was killing the monster that was under his bed. But in in a lot of these in a lot of families, there's a lot of military history. It's more black and white to them. Yeah, this is what I draw. I draw mm -hmm. army tanks. Mm -hmm. I have um, there's a, a a boy in kindergarten whose grandpa was in the army and. He apparently loves his grandpa, so he likes to draw battleships uh -huh. and warplanes. You know, they're just objects of art about that. It's They're not violent in any way. Yeah, it's simply what they it's do. It's simply yeah. a documentation of what they do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, we're, so really, what you think about these episodes of fantasy violence, whether they're, they're lived experiences, they're uh, connected to the child's family, they might be source of... Uh, interest uh, related to their play, uh, but they are great jumping off points for inquiry. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's basic, they can do basic research on it. And I remember having children who were uh, interested in World War II, and this one boy, he knew all, uh, all the names of the equipment, uh, the, the, the weapons uh, that the GIs were using while they were in the Pacific uh, Island jumping, and he could he was writing copious stories about these, you know, Iwo Jima, and uh, he was only in fourth grade, and uh, this was his passion. So we were we were enhancing this learning experience that he was involved in by uh, we were also in, have asking him to write in his journal about his art. So he was we were doing transdisciplinary learning with him, and and so this this art related to his interests in, in military and World War II, uh, you know, we got him to do quite a bit of writing. And so we, we know how important literacy is in education. Linguistic literacy is one of the main reasons we attend school. So I saw that as a, a major opportunity to, uh, to in, incorporate literacy education uh, through art and uh, asking him you know, and in fact, everybody writes reflectively about their art in a tab classroom. So, you know, we were getting stories about, uh, you know, a, a swarm, uh, a group of swarm learners were um, building a, a, a pet clinic for lost pets. And they were making art related to that, and they were writing about that. But we could see how when, you know, personally meaningful connections related to learning has a huge benefit in that children are emotionally connected to the act of whatever acts they're they're doing uh, and what better way to motivate a kid or any any student than to let them 
their what they feel is their area of expertise, per yes. se, or their passion, to let them explore it and, and learn that way and because it motivates them. Yes. You know, what, what better way to motivate them than, than to allow them some creativity? Yes. The one question I was wondering, you know, we, <clears throat> Clyde and I see this a lot, and we're probably a little more accepting of a lot of different things. I was always curious, in the age of zero tolerance, is there any negativity or any negative effect that can happen to kids if you don't give them that outlet? Is there, how might that manifest itself in other ways? Well, they're not able to express themselves or their emotions and say they can in, in drawing, then it it's allowed to fester or they, um, especially when I think what they draw it's not inquired about or they're not asked further to explain where they're coming from. It's a great way to see where the kid is coming from. But, you know, as with anything, I think being able to express whether it's musically or in drawing or writing, people have to be able to express themselves. And kids have to know it's safe to do so and find a healthy way to do that. So, Tanya, what I wanted to ask was when you notice... Uh, if I hear what you're saying, when you notice a child creating something that might make you uncomfortable, it's important to talk to them about it and find out what they mean, what it it means to them. Absolutely. Definitely not a yes-no question. Just, you can, you know, look at the picture and say, tell me more about what you're drawing. Um, It may not be what your mind goes directly to. It, you know, in the mind of a child who doesn't have the same experiences that we've had, could it could be very innocent. Most of the time, it is. Um, But I, I think just you know, tell me more can can give you a lot of information and open up that opportunity for discussion with the child. We were we were talking about providing children with a safe space in school to express themselves, Mm -hmm. and I think. For example, Clark Freilich's art room is that place for children at Sugar Creek Elementary. Um, they feel a certain connectedness to Mr. Freilich's art program, and when and they know when they're in here that they can explore mm-hmm. ideas related, you know, ideas that may be taboo or considered ideas that they may not be able to explore uh, safely anywhere else. But in the art room, they. They can explore them, and I think one of the important things about education should be to to seek knowledge and to explore an idea, mm-hmm. uh, and and to go deep into uh, your interests. And so I know when I was a kid, I was doing that. Uh, in third grade, I went to St. Patrick's Elementary in uh, Walkerton, Indiana. I I don't think the sisters would have let me, would have encouraged me to do this, but in third grade I had a lay, t- lay teacher. She was um, Mrs. McDonald, I'll never forget forget her. I was interested in monsters. And uh, as a third grader I wrote a two-page play at home, because I was always drawing monsters, so I was into Bella Lugosi and uh, Creature Feature on WGN Channel 9 out of Chicago, um, I wrote a play where um, there's a mad scientist, he takes dead bodies, he turns them into a monster, the monster comes alive, the prince shoots the monster with a silver bullet, 
before he attacks the princess. And that was the end of the play. But my teacher, she saw that as opportunity to do a class play. And we did, we made sets, we made costumes, we rehearsed the play. Coming and to a Disney theater near you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but she, she recognized that this was an opportunity mm -hmm. to enhance your interest, tie it into other things, and not just shut you down because she was uncomfortable with it. Right. right. And who knows what, what... And I remember the immense satisfaction as a child. I think that really propelled me to go into teaching later on. And who knows what I would have done had she not offered me a chance to have my play published. I mean, we presented it to all the mm -hmm. grade levels. It was a small school. I think we, I think 60 kids saw the play, but it was a big deal to us. And uh, That's one class size for me. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. 60 kids. I had 12 kids in my class. Were you valedictorian? No. Or no, I was from the other side of the tracks. <laughs> There's something to be said about small class Hey, at least you were in the top 20, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. But... I was thinking, you know, despite the topic of my play being one about, you know, monsters and cadavers mm -hmm. and shooting, and we went on with the play, and it was, it had a huge impact on me, and I'll never forget that. There's one thing I notice is teachers, whether it's based on their district guidelines or whatever, I think teachers are more strict than parents. I think if you have a boy or a girl who's making things and you talk to the parent, they're like, oh, that's great. They're not really worried. I'm saying this as a, in a generality because I know there's, there's probably some kids out there where the parents are worried because it's a continued thing, you know, like we talked about earlier. But, but they support the fact that we allow them that freedom to explore that in a safe environment. Um, at least the parents that I've talked to were really supportive and not, well, why is little Sally drawing these? Because what we see in our classroom is, is more of an extension of what goes on at home. I think the more you, you're saying, too, I'm kind of trying to connect at the elementary level, it's still that creativity and exploration where at the high school level, you know, if a student were to draw those things, I think it would be looked at differently, or it could be. We have guns uh, in drawings and mm -hmm. paintings, and they're typically they are about gun violence mm -hmm. uh, and protest mm -hmm. pieces. Mm -hmm. And um, we had we exhibited one where a young lady a cheerleader she made a beautiful drawing of a gun, mm -hmm. and then she put a bouquet of roses coming out of the gun barrel, and so you have two. Two symbols that yeah. are that are paradoxical, and you know it's, it makes a very strong visual yes. image mm -hmm. and and communicates a strong message. Mm -hmm. So kids, again, they're draw they're telling stories with. I mean, how can you tell the story of World War Two without incorporating weapons into right. the imagery? You, and again, she was she was allowed to have that creativity. Yes, you know, and that was a positive thing. It wasn't squashed where. 
I don't know if it's like that everywhere. You know, if it's, I think, in the right context, maybe. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, but what is the context? Yeah. There's school corporations that have zero tolerance. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. if a student brings anything that's on the list, whether it's a toy or not, mm-hmm. it's automatic mm-hmm. expulsion, suspension, yeah. mm-hmm. and whatever. And that's that doesn't make school a very safe place to be, mm-hmm. uh, especially if, if he gets a squirt gun for his birthday and wants to share it and show it to his friends, he pulls it out in class. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. and he gets expelled yeah. or so it's just ugly. So it's it's a messy messy business trying to uh, provide avenues of self expression, perhaps controversial ideas for children. If you don't allow self expression, what does the school become? You want the school to become a accepting uh, environment that values children's voice and values their ideas and and allows the integration of those ideas into the curriculum because if you shut them out you're telling the child that your ideas are not important and that will lead to a whole new set of problems. Uh, the child's already getting, you know, uh, they are in a, a narrow curricula structure. Clark and I have talked about this in earlier podcasts where, you know, grades can be used as rewards or punishments. Weapons. And, and Weapons right? of can, mass destruction. They can be yeah. perceived that way by the child. And some children, as you know, Tanya, some children come to school and they suffer from anomy and um, disengagement mm-hmm. and they don't care about school. So what Clark and I have always tried to do with our approach to inter- integrating fantasy realms into art making, we saw it as a way to connect the child to school, to connect their interests into the school setting. and. I think we have done, we've maintained uh, a philosophy to do that. I think it's been successful. I think that we, ha- we have a strong community mm-hmm, in, in, in our school, with our schools. Uh, I think there's, there's, a, there's a, I think our community likes our schools. I think for the most part, our students like our schools. Uh, and we serve a lot of children from the general population. Um, having said that, I know that we there are still children who are disengaged from school. Mm-hmm. And I think as a parent, <clears throat> if you have a student that is, we'll say, disengaged from what we would say the average cl- in the classroom, the hands-off things, uh-huh. you know, like the reading and, and things like that where they don't seem as interested, they seek out the creativity part of it mm-hmm. and that might be their only time they are they feel successful at least heard I think too from what I see the kids a lot of kids that don't do as well in the classroom they love art yeah you know they love our unified arts rotations and things because they're moving and using their their brain and it's all connecting then but in and it's it's welcomed versus you know, being very, like you said, stringent or guided. So in, in most curricula settings, the child is doing the following. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, fo- they're, they're, they're tasked and they are expected to comply with the task. In a visual arts setting, like a tab setting, 
the teacher is still providing lots of content and, mm -hmm. and, and knowledge and information, but the child is the one doing, you know, they're, they're the, the agent now. They're tasking. They're, they're the ones designing the task and designing the events. So that's a role reversal. Mm -hmm. That means using executive functioning. Um, they, they struggle at times to do that. It's, it's, it's a developmental thing, but it takes them a while. It's almost a shock to their system when they get into some of these classes and, and they're expected to take control of their learning and direct it. And, and to think freely. And to think freely. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's sad because you can sit there in a, in a studio setting and you have all these materials and the, and the student or the child's like, I, I don't know what to do because they've always been fed information. They've always been given directions. That's not the purpose of my classroom. That's the purpose of any tab classroom is to give agency to the student to do that. And some kids pick it up really well. Other kids struggle with it. And so we can, those are the kids we kind of focus on. And we can nurture the, the ones who get it and then help the ones who struggle with it. But it's, it flips the idea of education backwards, mm -hmm. upside down, sideways. <laughs> well, you bring up another interesting point. And I mentioned to Tanya earlier I was going to bring something up, and I'm going to bring it up right now. Um, and that is the... Um, Tom Brady's a loser. <laughs> <laughs> For once in his life. The, uh, That's not it. The, no. Um, back to my... Yeah my big thing that I want to mention. So, so a major concern of mine is the ubiquity of digital devices in the hands of children during their formative development. And it's not just my concern, but the concern of other people too. And uh, so you think about this device, and I've got one I'm holding in my hand right now, my personal digital device. And a lot of children have cell phones, but not just a cell phone, but children whose parents at a very young age give them electronic game devices to play where the child is basically seduced by the electronic aesthetics involved, the animated movement, the color is electrified, the, uh, the child uh, is um, induced into play seduced there's there's a, thousands oh, of engineers that's their job is to garner attention to whatever app game that is on there and it's addictive i mean but i know there's programs for digital addiction and getting people off devices and that's mostly for older adults mm -hmm. but it, it starts young and they hook them with a game. A lot of it is multiplayer fantasy worlds where these people become a completely other person. I think we can, we do and can see signs even at this level in the elementary school where we, you know, we've had discussions with parents about, you know, they need time away from the screen and, mm -hmm. and, but they can't, almost just can't do that. You know, the kids. Yeah are no. so obsessed with they it. They are obsessed yeah. with and it. And some people say obsession, but I think sometimes that obsession can lead into 
you know, addictions and, or, or whatever you might want to call it. Well, any time you ask a student to put their phone away, yeah. and you can see that anxiety building up because now they don't have that in their hands, mm -hmm. if it's causing a physiological event, that's an issue. I was, I was going to say, once arousal has been established and the child is induced into playing the game, dopamine is released into the brain. And these engineers know that. Mm -hmm. So they design their games. They make them easy to, to conquer at first. And then usually about two or three levels, they make it really hard. But it's, it's, it's a, a level that they can beat, but they have to work out a little bit. And then they just increasingly do that so the dopamine and everything is, is kicking in. They get into a state of flow yeah. playing these games. Um, and, and then they can't, they can't quit. You, you see it now where tops in the industry are asking these device makers to think about the kids. Um, I know Apple was recently requested by some of its board members to start addressing the addiction of kids in their wow. devices and at least giving parents more control over the devices so that they can set time limits in their devices. They're starting to recognize that these devices have adverse ref uh, effects on kids. The, the regions of the brain that are primarily activated when you're f playing a video game or a digital, digital game uh, are, uh, are they're located in just in the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. They're located just in one one area of the brain. They're not. It's not like as if you were working on a creative uh, activity where you would have to re you would require full body movement, uh, other areas of focus, uh, other areas of you know calculation, other areas of imagination. Mm -hmm. And so uh, those regions of the brain are ignored uh, when a child uh, spends so much time on digital devices. Uh, and then, of course, there's like, you know, back to the use of the hand. The hand, from our perspective, from what we know about neurology and, and uh, learning and creativity, it's the hand is the conduit to intellectual development. Now, if I'm just pressing my, f using my fingertip to slide a screen around or to just do typing and that's my primary activity throughout the school day I'm not getting a full intellectual experience or creative experience and then there's the there's the fact that only a small portion of my brain the myelin that is you know that's the the uh, protein or that builds up around the neurons in the brain that send electrons electrical signals faster and promote intellectual growth and you know make you make you smarter uh, the myelin is only working in that one region of the brain it's only developing in one region of the brain so what in essence is happening is children who are addicted to these screens they're growing up with lopsided brains then get this the state and school districts are pushing more technology, more screen on the children. How do you like them apples? Well, you know I don't like them apples. <laughs> I was reading a depressing book about technology. You need to read uh, Radical Technologies 
by Adam Greenfield. Uh-huh. And he goes through each of the individual technologies and how they are um, kind of taking over our lives and, and basically removing choice from the human. And I think really just <clears throat> tying that all back into the types of games that are played, I think to a certain point, parents do monitor it, but there's some point at too young of an age where parents, okay, it's a mature game, but 10-year-olds, 8-year-olds are playing these mature games. When someone dies, you know, you wait a few seconds and then you're alive again. Yeah. And you can go and play yeah. the game over and over and it's it's mature for a reason because little kids' brains cannot wrap their head around that not being entirely real or real real at all, actually. That's interesting when game makers, again, deal with death. It's different for the younger kids than it is with the older kids. At some point, Mm -hmm. they do realize that younger kids can't really deal with that. Mm -hmm. They spruce it up with funny noises and colors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then as they move into the more realistic RPG games, then it's very real. Mm -hmm. I I forget uh, where I read several studies... Uh, Jane Healy, one of my favorite psychologists, Dr. Carderis also was talking about, he wrote, uh, Carderis wrote a book called Glow Kids. But one of the other problems with too much gameplay and too much digital interaction and too much digital interfacing is the uh, lack of empathic development, Mm -hmm. a lack of uh, being able to empathize with other people and socialize mm-hmm. difficulty uh, in that area with you know children who grow up you know I, I, I don't the worst case scenario I, I could talk about is Adam Lanza he was obsessed with shooting games and was uh, the investigators theorize now and uh, criminal psychologists theorize now that he was uh, in a state of psychosis when he uh, induced by the, the, the games. Mm-hmm. There, there's an, a, there isn't a correlation between violent video games and violence. Um, there's a short-term increase in heart rate and those type of things, at least the studies that I've read. There's a short-term boost in that and aggressiveness, but it's not a long-term thing. Unless there's mental illness, which I believe he had, right? He, he was, uh, I believe, uh, autistic. So I think he had autism. You know, th- those are extenuating circumstances. I think Killing Monsters was the name of a book that I read about fantasy violence. There's no, at least at the time this book was written, there wasn't any uh, long-term studies. Uh-huh. Um, but you can find studies that say both things, right. and right. so it's non-conclusive. I think you made a really good point, or brought up a really good point, that you mentioned the mental illness, and I think that for a- average, and I don't, I don't know if you want to say normal, but within that average range, you know, people can cope, and kids can cope, and they have that ability, and if not, their parents are very help- helpful, but younger and younger kids, you know, are showing signs of anxiety and depression and all of those things. So those mental health issues, you don't know exactly what those are or what they might be. <clears throat> so to exposure to those things at too young of an age, I think, and, and maybe there's no research to support this, so I don't know, but 
Um, I think that, you know, that exposure at too young of an age, it could be detrimental when you don't know, you know, you want to know your, you want to think your kid's healthy, but they may not be. So, and how they cope with things or the remorse after their guy dies on the, the screen. I, I feel like, you know, those ratings are on there for a reason. Um, they may not, you know, I don't think they're going to make kids go out and do criminal things, but there's other things if we don't know what their mental health state is that it could affect, and that those are the things we don't know. Mm-hmm. I know kids, especially some of the, the 12-year-old boys and those things, they like to play games like Halo and those, mm-hmm. but you know they're rated for a certain reason, but mm-hmm. they're cool and everyone else right. does them. Mm-hmm. You know, I think some parents fall into a trap. Well, if so-and-so's doing it, then... Mm-hmm. They're they're normal. They're mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. and they don't think long term. They're only sh- thinking short term. Right. What's going to make my kid happy, mm-hmm. and not thinking. Right, and the makeup of of one child's not the right. same as every other child. They may you know the exposure to certain kids who are wired differently. You know, so, may not be good. So one thing I did want to mention uh, about the mass quantities of violent video games, and you brought up a good point about correlation. You know, and if you think about it, I mean, there are literally millions and millions of fantasy violent video game players. You think about it, if if it were true that violent video games create violent tendencies, which I think they create, you know, too much screen time, too much gameplay, does create some tendencies that, like, you know, lack of empathy with others sure. and mm-hmm. lack of capability of interacting in real-world circumstances. Yeah. And depression. <laughs> and depression. I, th- I think that there is a definite problem with respect to that, mm-hmm. uh, with too much gameplay. You know, if violent video games induce people to commit more shootings, I think we'd have much more shootings. Because, because there are yeah. millions and millions yes. <laughs> of game players. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, uh, when a child is creating a, a work of art that has fantasy violence in it, you're using a different set of mental operations mm-hmm. than you are if you're playing a video game. Because mm-hmm. in the video game, you are the fo- you're following somebody else's structure. At what point do we need to get concerned when we see this type of art? What kind of what point do we need to you know contact a counselor or have more deep discussions with the child or the child's parent? or even the principal. Well, I think actually for you being the experts, you know, I know if you bring it to me, then it's probably, one, developmentally inappropriate or something that has made it a red flag to you because you guys know what you see and you know, you know, over the years what is more developmentally appropriate. But um, I think a change in drawings, I think kids that are, infatuated by guns and war and things like that they're going to continue to draw that but you know if it was all flowers and rainbows and then all of a sudden it seems dark or um, uncharacteristic for the child then I think that would be a red flag Um, other things that I've read about interestingly to me is if they always choose black or if they always choose red colors um, and in in the way the drawing is so 
um, if it seems dark or if there's blood on the picture, you know, if they draw the blood in the picture. Now, every now and then, that's okay. But again, if, if it has been something that when you say, tell me more, and it seems, one, they can't explain it, or what they give you might be developmentally inappropriate, or something they've, that you don't think they have seen, if it's maybe sexual in nature, then, and you know, first graders, you know, where they are developmentally, it may not be something they should know about. Um, or age-appropriate. Age One thing that we are uh, looking at works that uh, included other students' names mm -hmm. and threats mm, of definitely. acts of violence yeah. On, yeah. on the drawings, that's a red flag. That's a really good point. I think the intent of it, yes. you know, the, the intent of just like childlike play, you know, the intent, a lot of times, you know, kids that play guns and war and things like that, they're playing but when the intent changes to hurt someone, mm -hmm. that you know that changes the the basis or the foundation of what they're meaning. Just like in a drawing, is the intent that they're going, they want to hurt someone, or they're being hurt, or they've been hurt, um, or like you said, more specific, even with names and things like that. I think the intent of the drawing is is a great yeah the con context yeah. of the drawing. Yeah. So that's yeah that's 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 a pretty important criteria mm -hmm. to look at um, mm -hmm. is context and intent mm -hmm. uh, but yeah definitely if there's names of other students on the drawings symbolic language that somebody's going to get hurt mm -hmm. that's a red flag mm -hmm. um, somebody when I say symbolic language mm -hmm. that somebody's got I'm referring to a, a fellow classmate uh, you know that's that's definitely a red flag sure probably maybe more in middle school and high school I don't know about elementary. I mean, there are times when I've seen kids draw other kids. Yes, more in a play, playing with fashion. Is yeah, that maybe so and so drew me. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, with yeah. stabbing me or something like that. That's when I talk to them and right. never really. Are there legal ramifications for missing things like that? Um, I think. In my, I guess in my train of thought, um, I think there would be more legal ramifications if you didn't inquire. Um, but again, not all kid. you know, if you have 10 kids that are drawing the same thing, then it's, it's hard to, you know, we don't want to assume that because a kid is drawing something that what other people might feel is inappropriate or makes them feel uncomfortable that they mean anything malicious by it. But so I think that there's there needs to be more than just one red flag. And again, you guys knowing the kids, have seen the kids over the years and things like that. If you bring it to you know your counselor or social worker or whoever, then hopefully they'll listen and say, you know, this kid, you know, that there's something about this picture that just throws it off and it's worth a conversation. I think to have with it with a child. On the other side of the spectrum, I I know of reports where there have been children who have innocuously drawn a gun in the margins of their note page. Another student reported it, and the child was expelled from school. Yeah, maybe knowing your your district policies yeah. and really. The, the 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 other thing that I wanted to mention was that. 
know, any teacher who feels uncomfortable with having their children draw fantasy violence, I mean, you can just put the kibosh on it and say, boys and girls, you know, that is something we're, we're mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. going to do in class. That's a really good point. In starting that from the get-go, you know, preventing that from, from being an issue in the first place, not, if you don't address it initially or say that it, it's an expectation not to do that, then it's going to draw more attention to it. If it does happen, you have to address it versus just from the get-go, yeah. you know, establishing those rules, saying it's yeah. just something I don't want. Yeah. You know, it's not that I, um, I'm believing one thing or the other. It's just as a whole, I want everyone to feel comfortable in the uh -huh. classroom, and this is something we're not going to Absolutely, because, because we know that there are children also who may feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. with their classmate drawing a picture. Right. It's... A complex issue, is you know, complex. how to read a child and what their intentions are, mm -hmm. uh, what to allow, what not to allow. Mm -hmm. uh, as a teacher, you have to be on your toes mm -hmm. uh, in the classroom and um, knowing your kids, mm -hmm. observant, yeah, knowing yeah. knowing the child and and seeing reactions too to those things. You know, you don't know what what a kid brings with them to school. Yeah, you know, either on a daily basis or yearly basis or however often, but. Yeah, their their experiences and exposures can you know those those what we think might be little could be major um, events that you know they're reminded of. Usually in in our classrooms, there the situation is most of the children are interested in their own creative events in real time. They're not cognizant sometimes of what their fellow classmates sure, are doing, sure, and they yeah. real they're into their own thing. Mm -hmm. Having said that, back to our original premise that we allowed for uh, depictions of fantasy violence mm -hmm. uh, to be expressed in art um, was something that we explored and we saw drawings, we saw paintings, we saw uh, some sculptural works, uh, we had puppet plays with fantasy mm -hmm. violence in the art room. And um, but the children understood that it's just yeah. fantasy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just play. Mm -hmm. It's fantasy. It's art. Well, Tanya, is there anything else you'd like to add? Any advice to our beloved listeners, all three of them? <laughs> I think follow your gut. If you feel like it's an issue, then just explore it. It doesn't mean it's going to go any further. Yeah, talk to your principal. Make sure guidelines are observed. Guidelines are important. Number one rule, don't get the art teacher in trouble. <laughs> uh, on, the other, on the other side of the coin, I just want to say there's educational gold to be mined from investigations related to fantasy mm -hmm. and fantasy violence. Awesome. <laughs> what else do I need to say? Anything? Oh, you know what? Oh, yeah, Tabstock is coming up. Tabstock. Tabstock is coming June 15th, 16th, and 17th. If you haven't seen Candy Pole Price's postings on the... Uh, Teaching for Artistic Behavior Facebook, Facebook page, check it out. I think it's there under the events. Yep. It's a great time. Clyde will be there. I'll be there. Candy will be there. That's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. We do have a lot of fun. It's a very intense professional development. Very intense. Everyone loves it. Joyful. They like Clyde's cowboy coffee. Well, our T-shirt designer and silkscreen printer, he had like 
he had all kinds of mojo going on. We have a, uh, another announcement to make. We have... Uh, I'm pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> we have confirmation of a very special guest coming up for our next podcast. She has signed a contract to be, <laughs> to be interviewed by Blocks, Paper, Scissors staff. I hope she doesn't pull a Josh McDaniels. Good <laughs> <laughs> one. I feel slighted now because I, I didn't, I wasn't asked to sign a contract, but I do appreciate, you know, it's been a pleasure being in your studio today. <laughs> Tanya, we can't thank you enough for joining us. It was a good time. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for your time and your effort and your wonderful commentary. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it, Tanya. Anything else, Clyde? Slap the bag. Yeah. So, thank you for listening to the Blocks, Paper, Scissors podcast. If you like this podcast, please review and rate it on iTunes. Five stars only. <laughs>